Ad Chats with Frank Palmer, the marketing, media, and communications talk show. Presented by LifeWorks. Thank you to all our sponsors. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview today. It will be about 45 minutes. And uh, also thank you for your kind donation to NABS. <coughs> NABS in our industry is our industry charity. And of course, like every other industry, we're, we're actually uh, going through issues just like everybody else. And I appreciate uh, your donation. Uh, I also know that you're probably the best person that I can talk to that can fully understand the changes in almost every industry, uh, marketing, advertising, and the trends that are taking place. And just as I said, how much our business or my business has changed since I've been in it over the years. And I also know a number of smaller advertising agencies that have been around for as long as I have, but their owners are now in their 60s or 70s and they're, they want to change. They want to get out of the business or they don't want to, they want to live in the past. So I'm going to give some of our viewers today a little background on your very interesting career and, and get into some questions. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great, Frank. Well, I'm, maybe I should call you Dr. Angus. <laughs> uh, you were born in Regina, Saskatchewan in December of 1947. You're known for being a very successful entrepreneur, sociologist, but mostly as a pollster. Angus went to the University of Manitoba where you received a BA and MA and then to Carleton University, your PhD. You completed a doctoral thesis on the professional socialization of dental students. I didn't know that. Angus. <laughs> I, I tried to hide that. <laughs> to hide that. You didn't become a dentist, I guess. No? <laughs> Good event. Also, you took a position at the University of Manitoba Facility of Medicine. And I guess I should be referring to you as Dr. Angus Reed or maybe Sir Reed. <laughs> um, you're also the chairman of the Angus Reed Institute and CEO and founder of Angus uh, Reed Global. You're a director of the Reed Campbell Group, which operates oper uh, rival technologies and Reach3 Insights. And your son, Andrew, uh, runs rival technologies. You've written numerous columns on economic, social, and political issues, as well as the bestseller book called Shakedown. Um, remember, you gave me a copy of that one and how the economy is changing our lives. And we will be asking you today lots of questions about the changing business and political world. He's also the recipient of the Canada Council Doctoral Fellowship and Entrepreneur of the Year Award for the Pacific Regions in the Services category. And you were inducted into the Marketing Hall of Legends. So actually you are kind of in the advertising business in some, some form. And in 1979, you founded the Angus Reid Group a market research company that grew into the largest firm in Canada. Later, you sold it to Ipsos SA in 2000, and it's still a company that operates as part of the global Ipsos group. And in 2004, you became the CEO of Vision Critical, a company that your son started. Shortly after Angus, you created the Angus Reed Strategies, which, which integrated with Vision Critical and became chairman in 2011. And in 2014, you retired for a little while, from Vision Critical to found the Angus Reed Institute. And in 2019, you returned from retirement again to launch the Angus Reed uh, Global. So I'm going to stop now, Angus. Otherwise, this whole interview will be about all of the accolades that you've done over the years and getting to some questions. So 
the first question I have, uh, we've known each other probably for 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for a long time. Do you remember where we first met? We met at an airplane. Flying were, we, were we coming from uh, Winnipeg or where were we, we coming? We were coming from? from Vancouver to Winnipeg. Vancouver, and you and I were sat next to each other. I remember it like it was yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you were the famous Frank Palmer. I mean, I thought you'd, 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 you'd refuse to meet with me on a number of other cases. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, you've also been doing uh, marketing and uh, research poster for what, 50 plus years, I guess now. I did my first survey in uh, <coughs> 19, uh, in 1970. So uh, 52 years ago. Wow. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's it's obvious that you must love the business because you're really the still today. I would say you're the number one name in this industry. Well, we you know we've done a lot of work, uh, particularly with uh, my institute in the last ten years, to really uh, as a not for profit uh, do a high volume of research without having to worry about clients. What don't in the business of research, everybody wants to tip the scales. They'll say, well. It'd be great if you could find this. I mean, and that's true in government and in business. You know, we deal with some marketing guy who really wants to prove that his idea about an ad campaign or new product is the best idea. They come to me back in my commercial. They say, Angus, could could you just do something to kind of kind of maybe maybe just twist your survey a little bit, you know? And yeah. uh, so I, uh, of course, uh, I never did that, but. I, when I founded Angus Reed Institute about a decade ago, I wanted to have my own sandbox where I didn't have any clients. And I could, frankly, piss off anyone I wanted. So we could just we could just do the research that we want to do, that we think Canadians need to have done, and not worry about the fact that the prime minister or some minister or some corporate guy is upset with us. So I, I'm going to get into that in a little while because I got some questions in that area. But it, it doesn't seem to matter if there's a poll on COVID-19 or gasoline or food prices or your favorite mayors or federal politics and who's going to win the next election. There seem to be all these polls seem to have your name on it. And I have a recent one here that uh, we're going to, it's just going to play here on the cost of food, which is on everybody's mind right now. So can we play that little video? More expensive. According to the nonprofit Angus Reed Institute, Four in five people are changing up their menu. If you have a kid at home, a child at home under the age of 13, you're much more likely to uh, report not only uh, struggling more with meeting that weekly food budget, but also uh, in terms of doing a lot of things to try and save money or cut back, much more so than if you don't have children in the household. About 62% of those surveyed are eating out less to save money. A little less than half are switching to cheaper, lower quality brands. And 35% are eating less meat. 21% are buying less fruits and vegetables. Angus, do you think it's uh, gonna get worse or get, is it gonna improve? Well, you know, it, it really, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's, I mean, it's unbelievable when you look at some of these food prices. I bought a steak the other day that might have cost me $20 three years ago. It was $45 today. So, I mean, there has been a remarkable inflation, particularly in food, but also in housing prices and everything else. Now, is it going to get better or worse? Well, the government's moving in to try to increase. In fact, we're seeing pretty record increases in uh, interest rates. This is an attempt to tamp down uh, the demand in the economy. 
But there's other issues of uh, supply chain problems, uh, the, this war in Ukraine, uh, uh, price gouging uh, uh, from people who can, uh, who, who can do that. And we've got a dairy industry in Canada, which is heavily regulated. It, they basically have no competition. They just have to decide they're going to increase prices by about 17% across the board. So, I mean, I think we put all this together. It does create this huge bind we're working into. Uh, and I think one of the uh, pieces of evidence of that is the shortage of workers. Now, why is there a shortage of workers? A lot of people can't live in some of the major cities in Canada, including places like Vancouver. The cost of housing is too much. So people are moving into other communities, smaller communities, communities with less housing costs. They're, they're, they're changing how they consume things. And so whether this is going to be a long-term trend or not, I don't know. But certainly all of the signs are not very uh, positive in terms of a likelihood of just returning to the world that we knew three or four years ago. I uh, actually saw a clip yesterday where this uh, gentleman who owned a, a very large uh, franchise in the, uh, you know, stake and, and uh, he was actually apologizing <clears throat> to um, almost to his customers to say the cost of food has gone up, the steaks are gone up, that he has, and the service isn't all that great. So he's apologizing because he said, my waiters have to serve more tables than they did before instead of two. So instead of serving three or four and the service isn't as good. And he's apologizing for all of that, which is kind of unique for someone to say that. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the bind we're in and, and there is a shortage of workers everywhere. If you go up to Whistler, uh, there's restaurants that are not open because they can't find staff. Here in Vancouver, there's restaurants that are only going four or five days a week because they don't have enough staff. So it's a real problem. What, what, what has changed, Angus, from the time that you began your early career to conducting business today? I'm guessing a bunch, eh? Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm going to ask you that question again, but I'm going to play this little video here first. Well, we, we actually sample uh, young people from, uh, from the Angus Reid Forum, and the proportion of young people in this sample is exactly equal to the proportion of young people in the Canadian population, so there is no... There is no uh, particular bias there. Uh, younger people are represent a more difficult survey audience today mm -hmm. than do their older counterparts. There's no question about that. But I can tell you one thing: if you want to, if you want to survey younger people, your uh, the web is the only way to go. And, and these surveys, by the way, are not just d done on on laptop uh, computers. They're 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 also done on uh, on smartphones and on iPads. So. So uh, we, we feel comfortable with the results uh, in respect of young people. But I think that uh, this particular viewer is right, that it, it's a tougher audience. But obviously, we take uh, great pride in trying to ensure that we have a representative group of young people. Okay. Um, David Green says he doesn't really trust the validity of your poll. Um, he says, I don't recall being asked my opinion. What demographic did you choose for your polls? Well, uh, this, is, this is a question I've been asked for almost 50 years. I mean, when you only sample uh, 4,000 Canadians, guess what? Uh, that means there's something in the order of, in terms of Canadian adults, uh, 29,996,000 Canadians who were not asked. So, yeah. uh, look, the, the, the key of sample research is to be able to stir the pot in such a way that you can take a very small teaspoon and know it's in the pot. And... Uh, uh, so we this this is this is a survey in which we use our techniques to invite people to 
do the survey. That's what makes it uh, an objective and accurate survey. I mean, there's been a lot of talk right now in the U.S. election about opinion polls and Donald Trump. Well, those are opinion polls where you're invited to go. Everyone is invited to go to a website and fill out a poll. We don't do it that way. Those right. are those are completely unscientific, even though they can get large numbers of responses, completely unscientific polls. And I'm wondering what age group was asking some of those questions, probably some of the younger ones. Yeah, well, you know, I think they look, the whole issue of younger people, you talk about what's changed uh, in the last uh, 50 years, uh, actually really what's changed in the last 20 years has been the fact that younger people are not turned into media the way that our generation was. I mean, if you look at media, you know, the role of media in people's lives in, in the 60s, we had television takeover from radio and newspapers and, tel and that television uh, experiment, and, and that's how it'll be viewed in history, that television era from the early 60s until 2000, 2010 was, was really significant. Not only did it provide advertisers and marketers with an audience that was, as Marshall McLuhan said, emotionally connected with this uh, medium, which allowed for a tremendous connection with brands. It's a medium that really worked well, as you, as you know, Frank, because you were one of the, you know, the pioneers to really connect people in a very visceral way. But you know, it also was the the lens through which people looked at what was happening in the world. I mean, for most of that period in Canada. We had three or four networks, and those networks collectively were the lens in which we saw the news, what's happening out there. I'll tell you right now, Canadians under 40 don't watch television, or they watch television. If they watch it, they're watching streaming services. They're watching things largely without advertising. They're watching YouTube. They're on social media. And we, and we have done at the Institute some uh, significant studies looking particularly at media habits of of uh, uh, Gen Z, who yeah, are now yeah. in sort of uh, uh, up to age 25. This generation uh, doesn't even watch the news, does not, uh, has not, uh, 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 rarely watch television news, never buys a newspaper, never buys a magazine. So we have, we have a whole generation which is changing in the way in which they interact with the community. And so we've moved from uh, from three or four lenses to this unbelievably pixelated world of social media and TikTok and, 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 and Facebook and all the usual suspects as Elon Musk now buying Twitter. Maybe that'll be good or bad, who knows? But so the, the number of choices is almost infinite. And this creates probably uh, the biggest challenge, not just for advertisers, but for developing citizen values in our society. I mean, when when the truckers went into Ottawa, we have these guys that, let's face it, are many of them are a bunch of Yahoo, you know, guys from wherever. They got nothing to do in the middle of the winter. So they their their trucks arrive in Ottawa and they figure, well, it's perfectly acceptable for them to just take over the city for a month. Most of those people just communicate with themselves. I mean, they're they're looking at and just looking at mirrors that reflect their own views and values and don't realize how angry the rest of the country is about this kind of disruption. So we we are we are living in a very different world, which has major challenges in terms of arriving at a consensus on issues, major challenges for brands to to really uh, project their uniqueness and to connect with their consumers. So it really is 
uh, a different world. Is it a world where uh, it's impossible? No, it's just a whole set of really new challenges. And you're right, some of the some of the old men and women who were part of that television era may not find they can adapt. So they're gonna move on. But there's, look, there's new generations that are moving in trying to figure out how to solve this problem. I, I think you're right. I mean, <clears throat> just ourself now, since uh, COVID, trying to get people back into the office. Yeah. And <clears throat> some wanna come in, <clears throat> some don't wanna come in. And then it's trying to find that happy part for all of them. And uh, yeah. if, if you have to force them to come in, they can say, well, I'll find another job. Well, we did a survey actually where we found that somewhere around 20 to 25% of Canadians say, look, if I'm forced to go back to work, I'll find a different job. And you know what? We're in an, in an era where there are more jobs than there are applicants. So it is really that, and now whether, how long this lasts, I don't know, but the, uh, the teeter-totter has moved in the direction of, of employees as opposed to employers. Yeah. Again, how long that lasts. I'm, I'm finding that out. I said, there's so many different sectors that we have done advertising for in the past. And I'm kind of like, who's next to go out of business? Who's the next blockbuster? And uh, even in our own history, you probably know Roy Osing, who's written a number of books, right. uh, Be Different or Be Dead. And he had a very good line in his book that, or his new book that's coming out. It said, what is your only? And I, it, it hit me that way to say, what is it you can do that only you can do and others can't? Because there's too many industries that do the same. Right. And, and you want to feel very special or important when you go to, uh, uh, or what is your special sauce? Um, I have a short video here where you tell the interviewer, uh, the freedom to do uh, research polls with freedom of not upsetting your clients. So let's just play that little video. Angus Reid, with his years of public opinion research, knows more about politics than probably any living politician. He's seen the trends, he's seen the numbers, he's talked to the people, he knows it all. Good evening and welcome to Voice of BC. I'm Vaughn Palmer and here we are nearing the end of a national election campaign and if you haven't been contacted by a pollster during this campaign. I must assume you're living in a cave somewhere in the mountains since there's a lot of talk about polling. I'm delighted to say on the show tonight we have the grand old man of the polling industry in Canada, Angus Reid. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Ron. You don't mind being called a grand old man? Well, I'm, uh, you know, 67, soon to be 68, retired guy, so I guess I can look back at, uh, at a lot of changes in this industry. One of the biggest changes involves you for a long time. I mean, you've been associated not with not one, your name is on two of the big polling companies in Canada, and you've just turned yourself into an institute, which I hope doesn't mean you're going to be institutionalized. Uh, tell me about it. Well, you know, I ran the Angus Reid Group until really from the mid-70s to 2000. We sold that to Ipsos in 2000, and it became Ipsos Reid. I'm not associated with Ipsos Reid anymore. And then I uh, worked with my son on Vision Critical, which is a, a polling software company that's done very well. It's got about 750 employees. And uh, I was CEO of that from 2000, basically, until last year. And I really decided as I approached retirement that I wanted to I wanted to develop a not-for-profit, non-commercial polling organization. One of the problems in the polling business is that you've always got clients and you're always afraid, well, if I do a poll on this, maybe I'll, I'll upset someone. Uh, we don't want to have any clients. We have no commercial clients, no political parties, no government. So we're able, and I've been fortunate enough to have done financially well in my career. So 
I used my own resources and we received a CRA approval to, to form up what is basically a not-for-profit foundation. And its, uh, its goal, its purpose is to do uh, public interest research. So most of the work that we do is on public policy issues and a wide range of them. And, and as I say, without any of the interference that comes from worrying about upsetting some client out there, which, which tends to be uh, one of the uh, kind of hidden secrets, if you will, of the polling industry. Not, not that anyone would ever make up uh, you know, some fake answers. But, you know, if Air Canada is your client, are you really going to be doing polling on their new baggage charges? Well, you know, we don't have to worry about that. So we, we've looked at a wide range of issues and are having a lot of fun doing it and hopefully moving the policy needle a little bit. So that that's really the purpose of the Institute. And we've been up and running for about I, a year. Uh, I found that one very, very, very interesting because having been in the ad business for a number of years, as you know, uh, sometimes we get a client that comes in to tell us what they want us to say about their product and we say that uh well uh we have to find a way to lie about it and uh it's not as good as you think it is and and i i have uh, i'd love to be able to say that i have a, a a little joke here that uh that i i tell different clients where the the owner of this large dog food company said to his marketing director go and hire the best marketing company in the world and and also, uh, I want to spend $15 million and I want the best spokesperson because our, our sales of dog food are down. And uh, over the next three months, I want you to do this. So he comes back three months later and he says to the marketing director, did you do what I told you? Did you spend this 15 million? Yeah, did you, did you hire the best advertising agency? Got the best advertising agency, the best spokesperson. He said, well, our sales are still down. He said, sir, I went to the Angus Reed Institute and they found out that the damn dogs won't eat it. <laughs> and, and it's like <clears throat> you'd love to say to a client if you just change your product ever so slightly or your service you do better and um it, it allowed me to go to another clip where uh, the, the same interview on the election where you said we screwed up let's just play that little clip. oh my god decades <laughs> of polling your call on the bc election the last poll you put out just before we voted is the biggest miss in five decades of polling. What happened? What went wrong? Well, in a nutshell, there's some things that went right. Uh, we, we did uh, four, four polls during that campaign. All of them, by the way, on our own ticket. So we had no media paying anything for it. it was, we, yep. and, and as a result, we learned a lesson. You can't underinvest in these things. But we had at the start of that campaign, the NDP ahead by 21 points. At the midpoint, they were ahead by 14 points. Late in the campaign, it had dropped only seven points. The real mess, was the final campaign where we had had them, uh, where we had the NDP leading by nine points, and that and that really was that was the they rogue lost poll. By five. That was the rogue poll. And what happened was that uh, that the Kinder Morgan issue had become a really big issue in the interior, and we missed it with younger voters. That that actually that actually served to ignite a level of interest among normal. Uh, NDP supporters in the interior who either wouldn't vote or if they voted would vote for the NDP. Now, we there's there's a lot of waiting and a lot of yeah. other things that go into yeah. the calculation of polling. That particular poll did not have the kind of investment it should have had to 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 really uh, to really bring those numbers to bear. And and you know it was uh, it it was in my view it was a screw up. And uh, you know some of the people that were associated with that are not there anymore. And we've done five elections since then, which have all been spot on. Uh, you know, the thing which is, you know, problematic about being a public pollster 
is that you do all of these polls, we've, we've done over 40 since I started doing online polling in 2007, over 40, one big miss, which was BC, and everyone wants to talk about BC. Okay. The New York Times said we were uh, the third closest in the last US election campaign. We were the closest in the last two federal campaigns, the closest in the, in the BC campaign before this. But this is a business in which there is no commentary uh, associated with the victory of pollsters and and uh, and great scourging when when yeah. you're wrong and and it's interesting it's led Gallup uh, earlier today to announce that they're actually not going to be in the business anymore so uh, they're not going to do yeah. the big Gallup organization in the states you're it's right reporting today saying they are not going to do horse race polls in the United States elections anymore. Um, I you know and I know that I'm the guy that calls you on just about every election to say where's it going and I've never seen you ever be wrong. And whether it's Canadian or, or U.S., so uh, I thought that was quite interesting. Well, that B.C. election was uh, under-resourced, and I, I won't go into names, but it was run by someone who was in a hurry to put that out, and uh, and I should have spent a little bit more time looking at that. And uh, you know, we did a very big deep dive afterwards. But as I mentioned in that interview, we you know. <laughs> It's not like we 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 upset any client. There wasn't anyone who paid for that. Yeah. I paid for that. So I upset. I, I frankly upset myself because we do look at. We don't have to always be the most accurate. But when you make a miss and you say X is going to win and Y wins, that's considered to be a big miss. So that that probably is the biggest miss in my career. And uh, you know you wear it and uh, probably done overall in fifty years. I don't know a couple hundred political polls. So uh, one in a couple hundred. I guess you just uh, pretty good, pretty good odds. I'd bet on you every time. Does the size of a, a poll make a difference or make it more accurate? Uh, the size, the size helps uh, clearly. But look, today it's much more difficult to do polling. Uh, first of all, telephone polling, which is which is really where where I cut my teeth back in the seventies uh, and eighties. <laughs> in those days, in those days, people would call in, I'd be doing a, a radio talk show and people would call in the talk show and say, hey, how come no one calls me? I want to be called. You know, polling was kind of new. Now it's like, uh, I'm going to put a device on my phone which will block any pollster who calls me. So, you know, uh, I, I there was, so the business has changed a lot. So so getting the, getting the cooperation of a member of the public to participate in a survey or a poll is much more difficult requires a lot more uh, a lot more technology and a lot more thinking than it did when I first started. Secondly, in terms of sample size, uh, it's not so much the size of the sample, it's, it's getting the right groups in the sample. For, here, I'll give you a quick uh, stat. Uh, women over 55 are six times more likely to agree to do a poll than men under 30. And so, you know, you, you really have to adjust your methods to make sure that you've got a very balanced picture of the population. And, uh, you know, we, we put a lot of money and a lot of effort in thinking into how to do that. Well, I have a little video here I'm going to play again. Play the video. About 4,000. Um, how was this regionally approach, approach, um, divided up? And is that a small sample size? Actually, it's a big sample. I mean, the typical national samples around 1,500. As we sat down with the CBC on this partnership project, and I should stress that Angus Reid Institute is a not-for-profit, non-commercial organization. I set this up two years ago, having had a whole career of running uh, for-profit commercial enterprises in the polling space. And I really wanted to have something here which 
which didn't rely on any commercial revenue. We, we are a foundation, so I, I, I sort of throw that out only because we, we, we really have no axe to grind on one side or the other of any of these issues and really trying to find out where the center of gravity is in Canadian public opinion. But when we sat down with uh, the CBC a few months ago and began working on this project, this partnership, we decided we needed a larger than normal sample, uh, normal being around 1,500 because we wanted big sample sizes in British Columbia, Alberta, uh, Quebec, the Maritimes, etc. We also wanted big city samples. We wanted to be able to look at what do people in Metro Vancouver, Metro Toronto, uh, Winnipeg, Montreal, etc. feel about some of these issues. So it's, it's actually a much larger sample size and one that allows us to dig deep in, in some areas that conventional sample sizes don't allow you to do. And, and what was the margin of error on the results well, the that you found? Well, the margin of error is always an interesting question because this, this used uh, a panel of about 140,000 Canadians called Angus Reid Forum to collect the data. So the people who are part of that forum are then randomly chosen from that to be representative of the Canadian population. So technically, the margin of error application for this kind of online survey uh, is, is not a complete fit. But if it, were a, if it were a survey done by telephone, the margin of error would be around plus or minus 2%. There's a whole can of worms we could go into on how survey technology has changed as the use of the telephone has declined rapidly for a whole bunch of reasons, and online has become a much better way of conducting research. I should really stress that this, this by, by using an online panel, this wasn't the same as just having a website that people go to and you know, choose whether they want to answer the questions or not. So there is a lot of science that goes into this, but it's quite different. Very interesting. Science. I know that uh, we talked about this a little earlier about Canadians are willing to quit sometimes. Uh, one of the late, latest ones I heard was that we were being interviewed for a, a new uh, role in the agency and the comments between the, the new person to join said, uh, well, I'll, I'll come in three days a week. And, and the employer said, well, we'd like you to have four days a week. And he said, why? He said, well, I have a, a new pet dog and I, I would like to take care of the dog at home. And they said, well, you have to be here four days a week. And, and they said, she said, no, I'll, I'll find another job. And so it said, in fact, one of the polls said it, nearly 50% who prefer to work at home will be forced to, to quit. And, and I think this is gonna change. Uh, Sachi Curie, your president of the Angus Reid Institute said employers have their priorities and workers have their priorities. And this gap is huge between the two. She said, it's a wake up call. I know you touched on that before, but I, I really worry about that because I find that the synergy you have in an office, you lose when you have people working from Zoom. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. But, you know, uh, on the other hand, uh, the reality is that, you know, uh, Places, particularly like the big metro areas, Metro Vancouver, uh, really confront a lot of staff, particularly younger middle-aged staff with families with big problems. At, at our company, at Angus Street Forum here in Vancouver, we started, uh, if you looked uh, four years ago, we had, uh, we had 30 people all in Vancouver. Now we have 10 people in Vancouver. We've got people working in Kelowna. People have moved to Nanaimo. People have moved up to uh, Squamish, Whistler, uh, and they're they're making these moves in order to be able to, you know, get a proper uh, standard of living. They can't afford. They don't want to commute for an hour from uh, down the valley to downtown Vancouver. They can't afford to 
to buy or rent a place in downtown Vancouver. Uh, so it's it really is. I mean, you kind of have to go with the flow, Frank, or yeah. you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of things. We are so short in my technology company of engineering staff that we're now using engineers in Brazil and India because Amazon and Microsoft and others have come here into Vancouver. And the it's, the software engineer that we were paying 140 grand a year to, Amazon saying, well, why don't you come over to us for 250? So, I mean, look, we're looking at how do you adapt and survive in this very different labor market? And my colleague, Shachi Curl is absolutely right. There's this big gap. And when it's going to end and how it's going to end, no one knows. Well, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit, Angus, and uh, talk about how much you've actually given to various uh, charities. You, you founded the Institute, the Angus Reed Institute. You're a major uh, funder of the Monarchar Foundation, a charity helping families with uh, emergency food and medical supplies and schooling in, uh, in Mexico. And I know when I had this back surgery, you've donated to the VGH up there. Your name's on the wall and the plaque. How, how do you how do you pick the charities that uh, you you donate to? Well, you know, uh, I guess it comes down to looking at those areas which have affected my life. I mean, in the case of VGH, I made a couple of major donations there. Why? Because uh, I've had uh, a couple of operations and uh, received uh, some medical services there that were extraordinary and. Uh, I was asked, hey, could you help us uh, with a new surgery center or a new x-ray? And, you know, it's pretty hard to say no when you've been helped so much by people. Then I've got grandchildren that are in, uh, you know, in, in school and uh, the schools are struggling. So I've uh, so education has also been a focus of mine. And uh, <laughs> excuse me, we funded uh, everything from uh, uh, the Global Reporting Center at UBC to uh, some local high schools. And uh, so education is another big category where we feel uh, some extra funding can make a difference. And you are also a, a, a member of the committee of the uh, board of directors and Rick, Rick Hansen Foundation, which I was just talking to you last week. And uh, be, yeah. uh, you helped him a lot. And uh, do you feel that there's a, was there a family issue here that sometimes people just feel comfortable in doing it? I said to Rick on the phone, I said, I never thought about me having been healthy all my life and not having too many issues until I had a back problem. Now I, now I would donate to the VZJH because it, it, he said, you're absolutely right, Frank. He said, most people don't think about it until something happens to them. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, and also I've been fortunate in having a couple of very good exits from uh, the companies that I've started. And so, you know, when you, uh, I guess, you know, uh, I grew up in the, I guess what I can say unabashedly was the kind of Christian Catholic tradition, which was uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. So, and I'm not trying to turn turn myself into a saint here, but you know, <laughs> I think that uh, I think that, that there, there's a responsibility for people with the resources to uh, to do what they can to uh, help out uh, institutions and individuals in our society. Well, that's that's very good. I mean. What would you think about what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? I mean, what would you like to have people remember you for? Well, I mean, uh, well, I'm 74, so I guess I better start thinking about that. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I look at I've devoted my life to uh, public opinion research. That's sort of been my 
my uh, you know that that's that's been the focus of my work and activities and uh, you know I would like to think that we've been able to move along uh, the art and science of that that we've had an impact on on some you know some poly on, on some policy issues that have emerged I mean we've done a small example a lot of work in the pharmacare area trying to point out how many Canadians are are, are either not using the prescriptions they've got or only using part of them because of financial pressure and helping to, I think, uh, at least shed some light on the need for uh, some relief for those people. So, you know, I, I've spent my life, you know, trying to hold up a giant mirror uh, and allow Canadians and Canadian society to look at themselves. And uh, hopefully uh, when, I'm, when I'm gone, uh, some of that work can be looked back as having a bit of an impact. And you know what? There's another generation moving along. I've had a, the opportunity probably over my decades in this business to work with and have, I don't know, somewhere around a thousand or more employees. You look at some of those people and their careers moving forward. You look at your kids and your grandkids and you say, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you want some form of continuity, uh, you know. Not everything has to be a, a you know a plaque or a statue. There's there's the, the, there's the real life legacy of people who maybe have have moved ahead as a result of your activities and who themselves will make a contribution. Yeah, um, I'm going to move on. Just a few more questions. I have a few questions from uh, from the audience. Also, I said, um, uh, have you ever had any polls that uh, you've turned down? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, lots. I, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's hard. <laughs> you know, I don't keep a list of them. I mean, <laughs> probably the most famous we had a we had a a request years ago. You may remember this guy who was the Marishi, and he was sort of into people levitating. He wanted to do a poll on how would how would Canadians feel about going to uh, their local stadium where he would get everyone levitating. We said, well, that's you know, that's really a bunch of nonsense. We're not going to do that. There's a lot of push balls that people have done over the years. People want to prove a certain point. They want to, they want to convince uh, the government of something. I mean, we, you know, people in some some somewhat sketchy areas like uh, casinos will say we want to show that Canadians love casinos. Well, they actually don't love casinos. There's a lot of Canadians that think people are harmed by casinos. Uh, you know, so I, you know, sure. There's we we have to show a lot of judgment. And at the Institute, of course, we don't have any clients. So we don't have to worry about that. I mean, we get the odd crackpot that calls and wants to do something that's uh, that's really off the wall. And uh, the answer is no. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't mean to seem particularly righteous or virtuous, but uh, I've had I've had people in the development industry that have wanted to prove that uh, the citizens in a particular area of Vancouver want really want a new development. Well, <laughs> guess what? Our, our polling that we put out just a few weeks ago shows that most Canadians hate the development industry, hate developers. Like we're not going to, you know, we're not going to pretend that that's not the case. So, uh, well, Angus, as I said, I've known you for a long time and you seem to be one that's never going to retire. And if you do retire, you're going to come out of retirement and start something all over again. And I think you're just as excited today as uh, uh, you've ever been. Do you think this business is going to be uh, somewhat replaced by machines at some point in time? Um, you know, not really. I think that I think that the uh, the art of asking questions is never going to change. 
I'll give you a story. I mean, uh, uh, which, which sort of uh, exemplifies this point, and it's from uh, the 18th century, where there were these uh, uh, monks that were at at this uh, monastery, and one of them uh, was chastising the other guy about the fact he was smoking a lot, and so they thought they'd write the Pope. Well, the first guy wrote the Pope and said, "Is it okay if I uh, if I uh, 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 smoke when I pray?" Uh, and the and the uh, Pope got back and said, no, no, you know, prayer is very sacred and smoking is a dirty habit. The other guy being a Jesuit writes in and says, uh, is it okay if I pray when I smoke? And then <laughs> he came back, well, uh, you know, there's no time you shouldn't pray. So, I mean, I, I use that as just evidence of the fact that there's an art to polling. It's not just a machine business. Trying to figure out how to ask a question and how to ask it fairly, it takes a lot of thought. I don't think that's gonna be replaced by machines. Is there uh, any industry that you can think of that should pay more attention to public opinion? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm amazed at how many industries these days pay a lot of attention to public opinion. They, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if there's any beef I've got is that we have a, we have a government system in Canada that elects basically a dictator for four years. And even though the federal government does a lot of polling, a lot of push polling and other stuff, they basically can be in contempt of public opinion for a long time, because we don't have the checks and balances that you have in places like the US. We have, we have MPs who, are, who have no authority. If, if you say, hey, I feel this about some issue, they'll just kick you out of caucus. So we have a bunch of parrots in our caucuses we have even cabinet members now who, if they're not towing the line, I and mean, we saw Judy Raybould Wilson or Wilson Raybould getting booted out because, you know, Trudeau didn't like what she was saying. So I, I think that, yes, there's a lot of interest in public opinion and consumers. I do worry about the shape of government and the tendency in our Canadian system to have governments that can be pretty much insensitive, except when elections come around, to the shape of public opinion. Well, I guess um, that's about the time that we have today for the interview. And myself and Naps would really like to thank you uh, for both uh, the donation that you've kindly given, but more importantly, for your insight to where the industry is going and what's important in polling. And uh, I'd like to thank you very much today for this. Uh, Frank, it's been great. Well, I've known you for a long time. And uh, you talk about uh, someone who keeps going. Uh, you are the ultimate ever ready bunny. So Thank you. I think you're right along there with me, and I look forward to the next lunch that we're going to have that you're going to buy for me. Okay, <laughs> it's been fun. Thank you.